Hi, I'm Raphael Jovin, and I beat the Often Path first by not completing a whole school year until I was 13. I was an actor and did a lot of stage work. I was a photo model, did some of, acted in some of the worst German divorce dramas on very bad television. And my rebellion against my Bohemian family was to study sciences. That was the first time I sort of deviated from the often path in my own family, only to discover that I needed to do a lot of catching up in school when I did join. Later in life, I did become a scientist and I really, really, really loved the idea of being a molecular engineer and engineering organisms. And I really enjoyed the idea of trying to improve on natural systems. And my graduate school required me to do field work. And I realized very quickly that after becoming a molecular biochemist and biophysicist from a high-profile university, that actually going to see and seeing photosynthesis in the real world by diving under the ice in Antarctica, by going to the Central Pacific Gyre, that I actually needed to learn about the real world. and that in the real world, photosynthesis is working beautifully, super efficiently, much better than I could make it. And so instead of staying in my nice academic track, I became a naturalist and started studying marine biology. And through many twists and turns, I'm still doing that today. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we celebrate unique and inspiring success stories to help us get a better perspective on our lives and careers. Well, my guest today is incredible. Raphael Jovine is the founder and chief scientist of Brilliant Planet, a company unlocking the power of algae as an affordable method of permanently and quantifiably sequestering carbon at the gigaton scale to help us all alleviate climate change. Brilliant Planet has raised tens of millions in funding from major partners like Toyota Ventures and many more. And when you hear exactly what his innovative approach is, you'll understand why. But beyond that, Raphael's personal story is so incredible. Learn how he made massive changes in his personal life and career that led to his biggest breakthroughs later in life. Now he's a published author and leader extraordinaire. So here's Raphael Jovine of Brilliant Planet. Well, Raphael, you are full of surprises. <laughs> there have already been a handful of bombshells that you've dropped in our short time meeting each other. Hilarious stuff. I did not know that you were an actor before you began, but fascinating. Have you ever watched The Simpsons? I have to get this out there. Do you know the show The Simpsons? I love The Simpsons. So do you know the character of Ned Flanders? Of course. 
Right. So Ned Flanders' story arc is that his parents were these hippie bohemians, exactly, and that as him, as a backlash to that, he became a fundamentalist Christian. And that was one of the great jokes of the series, that he became that character not because he was pressured into it, but because he was rebelling against it. So for you, you have done the opposite of what you're supposed to do, because obviously everybody is supposed to leave academia and leave the business world and then become an actor, right? The ultimate holy grail is to become an actor, not to leave all of that behind. I don't regret that decision for one minute. Uh, Stage was a family. It was a very nice environment. People were very tight and close. Um, The fire marshal would help with my homework. The wardrobe was the safe space. Um, It was a great place to grow up, actually. And, um, And yet, I knew very early on, I didn't know why, really, and I was a kid. Um, but, uh, but I knew that there was something bigger out there and something else for me. And, um, and my family, I'm the first high school graduate in my family. My family comes from a very sort of different background. And now, you know, I've had two postdocs and I've done all the other things that, like you say, certainly nobody in my family, they, I mean, they still are puzzled by what I'm doing. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's okay. Sure. It's okay. Well, you know, right off the gate, we, we're we're going to dispel some myths because people who have studied figures like Einstein or classically smart people, there is this general belief, and certainly in the field of science, that if you haven't made your great contribution to science by the age of 30, you'll never do it. Your brain shrinks. You, nothing truly brilliant happens after you turn 35, that kind of thing. We've heard that. But you've done the exact opposite. You didn't even complete your first year of school until you were 13. So do you believe, first of all, that age is a limiting factor? This is a very leading question. We know where this is going. Uh, (laughs) Towards making a great breakthrough or contribution to the planet? So that's a wonderful question. I do believe that we have different skills at different times of our life and that it was easier, certainly, for me to make some fairly complex connections. When I was younger, I had more alert hours. I was more energetic, for sure. There are differences. But with experience also comes judgment and 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 sort of an inbuilt bullshit tester, uh, being able to know when your own ideas are maybe just a little bit too fantastical. And also the ability to to understand others better. Um, when you're young, you tend to be very impressed with your own thinking, whereas it requires experience and skill to learn from others. And so I, 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 I have reinvented myself again after graduate school, after I was a postdoc, I became a management consultant. I did work in a very corporate environment. And I was sort of very honest with myself where I felt I was missing something. There was something, there was a lack in my life. And uh, this is completely silly, but I would be standing at London City Airport, a very small inner city airport that's right on the Thames, and it smells like the marine environment Mm. and the kerosene from the engines of the propeller planes smelled sort of like the kerosene on the 
boats that I used to do my field work on. And I'd go to these clients doing pharma mergers and all these responsible things. And I would always be hankering for this field work that I had really, that had transformed me. And so I, I then sort of made lists of priorities for myself, where I wanted to see you know, what was missing from my life. And no matter what I did, it always came back to this business of doing field work and doing more biological research in the real environment. And so there's also with age comes a sense of self-awareness and, and, and recognition that you have sort of some, some needs that may not be met by your current job, for example. And so, and so I then set out to um, to try to address this, and you know, of course, once you've been out of academia for a while, you you are not so relevant anymore. So in my case, I I knew that I could do something about climate change. For me, it was obvious even in two thousand four and five that we needed to do something really big about climate change, and that things were running in the different direction. The rest of the world wasn't quite there there were some people in the climate community who were very aware but it wasn't as dramatic as it is today and and so using my new skills from my management consultancy and my old sort of research skills i tried to come up with um a new approach how, how I would tackle it. And the reason why I say that is this with age also comes a, a larger tool set. You have, you have uh, different insights um, that are not necessarily just on the content and the subject matter expertise, but on how to deliver it. And so I feel that also as a parent, you learn a lot. Um, I mean, my children know this, but, uh, you know, when my first daughter was born, I never put her down. She was perfect in every way. I hated the fact that people kissed her all the time um, and sort of slobbered on her. And I wanted her to be just perfect. And by the time my third child, my son, came along, and he would want to sort of dig around in the flower pots and eat the dirt. I just hand him the spoon. I mean, you know, you discover <laughs> that things are just going to be all right. You know, and they're going to figure it out. And so, and so, you know, you've, there are many learning experiences that make you a more well-rounded person that can be kind of efficient in a lot of other ways as well. Well, that's a great, great arc, and it's certainly parts of your story I have seen before. This idea that we've gone into the corporate world or that you need to go somewhere that you don't want to be this arc, this redemption arc where you learn these things, but then they transfer. We've heard that before. Like I learned how to manage teams and now teams are so important to what I do. I learned how to hit deadlines. I learned how to manage funding, all of these things that that are important to starting and maintaining any endeavor that is even loosely affiliated with the business world, even if it's social entrepreneurship or for climate change. So parts of this story are somewhat similar, but parts of your story are pretty extreme. Also the acting bit and the German divorce drama, all of that stuff is is quite hilarious. And I can tell that it's, it's going to be a very informative chat. And one of the words that you mentioned earlier was connections. And I love that word because 
I think that the smartest people that I've interacted with, they see connections between things that other people don't see. They see connections between seemingly completely unrelated things. So when did you start forming the idea of connections as it related to, okay, this is my skill set, this is my background, and then this is what I want to do with that? When did you start to zero in on what your actual mission and project were going to be? That's a great question, actually. So for me, um, I was an impatient um, very academically oriented young man. And I was quite happy being, even though I had wonderful mentors, really brilliant mentors, and really good collaborators, um, sort of the lone cowboy approach, uh, I felt quite comfortable. Um, and so the connection things for me came later, actually. Children were part of it uh, in the sense that it, you can't be a lone cowboy with kids, it's hard. Um, being a consultant was part of it because suddenly you had to be able to sell, to sell in a, to, to people that you might not otherwise interact with. And that's very important, I think. I think the connections make sense when you're stepping outside of your comfort zone and you're looking for connections with others that, that, that you, may, you might not have worked with before. And for me, um, I think that was a very, very important uh, role. One thing that has happened since then, I've started a company, it's growing very nicely. We have a very young team. It's very international. It's, um, it, the connections come at many levels. They come in terms of being credible. You have, you have to be persuasive. People have to be able to trust you that you do what you say you're going to do. Um, that you respect people and that, you know, not everybody works the same way, thinks the same way, or has, has other family needs or can't always be in the office or in the lab when you need them to be. And, and there's sort of a certain level of, um, for me, uh, appreciation of the challenges that others have. So we work in Morocco and in a, in a very humble environment and people have very little education. Some of our staff has no formal training at all. And, and yet they're very capable. And so being open, especially these days when there's so much uh, quite tribal behavior Very um, much. Is, 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 is really important to making those connections. The flip side is those connections are super valuable. Um, I am a, I'm terrible on, on, on social media. I am too old to really get social media. It's, I'm not very, it's just not my, that's not a skill set I have learned, but the connections are there for you when you're in trouble. They are there for you when you need advice. They're there for you uh, when you need a 
honest sounding board. Um, not all of my ideas have been so clever, frankly. And so having somebody sort of, you know, lift an eyebrow and say, well, hmm, have you really thought about this? This can be really, really helpful. So, so it's, I don't approach connections for the making, trying to make connections for the sake of being sort of very practical, but it turns out that more often than not, they really are very practical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and of course that's in terms of, of networking and, and, and people, but I'm also fascinated about connections in terms of ideas, things that seem unrelated in that sense. And the people who I'll all these things example. sound so cliche, right? Because you're like, oh, kids changed my philosophy. All of these things, it's hard to put them across in a way that is as profound as they might feel. Kids changed my life. Like, yeah, who cares? People so, who don't have so, kids will never understand that. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Fair enough. But to, just to illustrate, so when I went to Antarctica, we were part of a research study by the National Science Foundation where we went down to Antarctica to look at the biological impact of the ozone hole. And um, cool, uh, great study. It was a monster study. It was really well organized. But just to start off with, the boat was a chartered boat by uh, Norwegian sailors, and it was a Norwegian research vessel. And on the ship were people who do satellite analysis. So that was new to me. I mean, I was a biologist, ornithologists who are really brave people who fly around doing in these remote places, doing uh, bird counts um, by putting their own life at risk. I mean, they're extremely dedicated, um, really fundamental sort of physicists who looked at what happens to the light underwater. And, um, and then you're in an environment where uh, everybody's connected by radio, including this at the time, it was the space shuttle going overhead. But there are actually no people around. <laughs> so, so everybody's connected. Um, and you are talking to each other. And, you know, everybody has very different needs. Um, and yet, your, your, your bond is that you're in this extremely isolated place. In, in Antarctica. And what was fantastic about that was that you realize that uh, people have a very different view of the world. So for example, um, at the time, the British research station in Rothera, the British scientists were in a sense, compelled to stay there for two years. And they were really desperate for any outside contact. In contrast, the Polish research station had a little greenhouse in between their two sort of uh, residential units and lab units, which had the only vegetables and everybody in Antarctica wanted their one tomato. <laughs> you know, it's a, you know, very, very different challenges. Um, and down there, you make friends with everybody because they're the only people around. And so, and so that was by far the most um, eye-opening experience in terms of sort of having debates that I would have never stumbled on by myself. Um, what was wonderful back then was um, the, the, uh, the sort of spirit of collaboration was, was really very 
credible people. So when a boat would get stuck, some one of the other outfits would come to help. And um, and there was very little rivalry, and that was really encouraging as well. So yeah, I mean, of course, you're right. Connections come in in all kinds of places, but again, when you see um, when you see these ornithologists get into these little planes and fly around in Antarctica in their survival suits, expecting to crash, you know, that's a whole different level of of uh, of commitment that certainly I hadn't seen before, you know. So it is amazing stuff, and for birds, no less. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <kidding>. exactly. <laughs> Talk about priorities. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Obviously, that's very br- uh, bold and brave. So everybody knows that carbon is one of the main problems. Obviously, one of the things you must have seen is somebody doing a core sample and discovering the extent of climate change. You've witnessed it firsthand, no doubt, pulling out this ice sample in in those days. So you recognized before many did that carbon was a chief problem and you knew that we needed to not just curb how much carbon we're producing, but also actively reduce the amount of carbon because if we stop, It doesn't mean that it's going to go away. We still have to get rid of some. So when did the idea for using algae to do this, when did you decide that not only is that the vehicle for the change that I want, but also that I could build a business to do this? When it became apparent to me, like just just as you described, that decarbonization was going to be slow. I completely understand why developing countries, for example, want to develop and use the resources that they have available. Um, I completely understand how land use change, where we take natural resources, forests, swamps, and then uh, moors, uh, heather, that kind of thing, and then turn it into agricultural fields that the that the amount of CO2 that that land can sequester through natural photosynthetic processes is reduced. And so land use change, sort of continuing human development um, alone would continue to increase the amount of carbon that's, uh, that's either not reabsorbed or that is emitted for the first time. And so when I looked at the scale of the problem, where every year, if you look at the so-called Keeling curve, where in top of Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii, um, Professor Keeling has been measuring um, the atmospheric CO2, again, since the late 50s, every year, we accumulate a little bit more CO2 in the atmosphere. Uh, since then, since that Mauna Loa Observatory has been started, there are now observatories all around the world, going all the way from the Arctic to Antarctica, um, to track that annual CO2 increase. And when you see it, it's a zigzag curve. It's a very dramatic zigzag. It's a very spiky curve. And the reason why that matters is because in, when Mauna Loa is in the Northern Hemisphere and when there is summer and spring, 
there's a lot of carbon fixation happening in plants. And as the plants grow in the northern hemisphere, the northern hemisphere CO2 goes down. Mm. And then in the winter, when the plants go fallow and the fields are not sequestering and there's snow in the northern tundras and all that kind of thing, the CO2 starts increasing again. And it increases a little bit every year, a little bit more every year than it did the previous year. But the movement, that zigzag, is a big movement. We're moving many, many gigatons of CO2 every year. And that just goes through natural systems and through plant growth. So when I was a management consultant applying my management consultant sort of thinking to the problem of climate change, the question I asked myself, what is the biggest thing that I know that can that can move a lot of carbon. And it's cool and wonderful when people make some really nice sustainable product, but chances are they're not going to move gigatons of carbon. It's very important that we have our sustainably sourced coffee with our uh, nice recyclable drinking cup and all that stuff. Every little bit helps. And I, I don't want to at all minimize the impact of that. But when it comes to the scale of the problem, it's the size of the entire oil industry emission every year that's accumulating in the atmosphere. It's a big problem. But the plant activity is an e moves even more resources. So the question I asked myself was, how can I make a lot more biology happen? That was the real question. It had to be new plant activity. Uh, today, the lingo is it had to be additive. It had to be something that wouldn't have happened otherwise. I didn't want to displace a forest. I didn't want to displace a tundra and just shift the problem around. I wanted to do something new. So I had spent a lot of time in my academic life working on algal blooms. Uh, these are natural events that are at the base of the food chain. These are the little microorganisms in the ocean that uh, not only feed all of the ocean, and we'll I'll talk about that in a minute, but, um, you know, every puddle fills up with green algae. Uh, if you don't take care of your pool, it becomes green. And so these things grow for free. So the question was, can I do a lot more of that to the point where I can pull down a lot of carbon? So first I needed a lot of empty land. Um, and when I mean empty land, I needed um, uh, a lot of empty land. And I'll, uh, it, in hindsight, it's exactly the amount of sugarcane crop that is out there in terms of land we need. Interesting. We needed a source of energy. We needed unused seawater, and we needed organisms that could actually do all of that work. So everywhere in the ocean, it looks like one giant connected puddle where everything is sloshing around, but the local environments are actually very, um, very specific to, the, to that place. And so the organisms that live there have had a lot of time to get acclimated and adapted to that space. And they're very good at using the resources there. So what I wanted to do was get 
in a sense, local algae in empty deserts using with algae that can use that abundant sunlight that is usually in the deserts with deep seawater, seawater that has all the nutrients in it. That was the connection. And then um, I actually wrote a patent. The patent got granted, which was great. Great. Um, and it was called a method of carbon sequestration. And then there was this ma management consultant sitting in London uh, with a patent. Um, and what I thought was a good idea, uh, suddenly sort of wondering, now what? <laughs> what do I do with this? <laughs> and uh, and uh, and then it, it, I must admit, it took a while to sort of get it right. Um, but the fact is that was the original connection. It needed to be additive, sort of new in the lingo. It's new net primary productivity. And it needed to be something that we could do now. I, I was very keen on using things that people are familiar with. People are very good at moving a lot of water, for example, to make shrimp farms. They're very good at filtering out mining finds and the little silty stuff from big mining tailing ponds and things. So, so there is existing technology. Uh, where we are, you can imagine cold ocean, hot desert, there's usually a lot of wind. It's powered where we have electricity demand and, and paddle wheels and pumps. It's powered by renewable energies. So the idea was not to sort of create a new problem, but to do something that was very sustainable from the get-go and that would create more biology for the purpose of drawing in that carbon. And then, then even back then, even at the beginning, um, the idea was to find a very low-cost way of burying that carbon. And the, I, the, the, that connection came from the fact that the original oil that we are taking out of the ground now used to be algae 60 and 80 million years ago. And, and all I was thinking is, well, let's just put the oil back in the ground again, right? So that's where that connection came from. Super fascinating. Well, one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about looking at the solution and, and your company is typically in the news for the last five to 10 years, whenever you see algae bloom, the word toxic is preceding it. And it's often billed as something that we should be avoiding that is an unintended or undesired consequence. So what is a toxic algae bloom and how can we do this in a way that's not toxic? So it's a great question. Um, and, and, while I like all algae, you are correct. I used to, when I was at Woods Hole Oceanographic, I used to work on harmful algal blooms, which include the toxic red tides and things like brown tides. Um, and of course, the whole idea was how to avoid them. Uh, I mean, right. of course, you're right. And, um, and what they are, there are about 27 different organisms that either make a toxin, and some of them are really nasty. I mean, really spectacularly nasty. Uh, or they irritate organisms or they eat other things um, that you don't want. And very often they're a result of some form of environmental perturbation. So we've added a lot of nutrients to, this, to the local environment uh, through detergents or other things. Um, or they're a result of the water heating up and stratifying and you get a warm layer on top that doesn't support 
the sort of normal biology, and then the only these harmful organisms can can find a way to use that environment. And so they're often a result of things going wrong somewhere else. Um, and you are correct that they can cause quite a lot of, I mean, damage, um, and and that they are. Uh, that that you know some of them need to be managed and avoided i mean they make fumes that cause asthma all kinds of things diarrhea they can paralyze you i mean there's all kinds of problems so so um there's something fascinating about them though so what these organisms have figured out is you have a mixed community hundreds of different organisms i'm sorry let me just put the ear we heard nothing <laughs> okay good okay. Uh, hundreds of different organisms viruses predators all coexisting at the same time and then one organism says mm, these are just the right nutrient levels with just the right amount of stratification i can grow faster than the next organism and if you just keep growing faster, you outcompete everything else and you crowd out all the other organisms. So what's interesting about these blooms, these harmful blooms, is that they find ways to sort of dominate the water column for a while. And, and that method of propagating that exponential growth, um, again, was one of those connections. I thought, well, if I can do that with the sort of normal blooms that are actually the base of the food chain that are feeding the animals in the ocean, making all the fish, the clams, the crustaceans that we're, we like to eat, um, then if I can apply those same principles uh, to, to maintain the bloom, then I can, uh, I, can, I can, in a sense, make these blooms happen in my ponds on my um, in in the desert and there the reason why that story is important is because what the real invention is algae will bloom naturally fish will lay their eggs uh, in anticipation before the bloom happens because they're so regular so the sardines in california will actually you know uh, spawn before the bloom forms so that the eggs drift into the bloom as it is forming so that the little baby sardines have lots to eat when they hatch out of their eggs. Um, and so that, that phenomenon is quite predictable, but it's temporary. It only happens for about uh, 10 days, two weeks, maybe three weeks of the year. And what I wanted to do is, is to have a sort of commercial proposition, how to draw down more carbon, as I wanted to do it year round. And the real invention was to make that spring feeling, that thing that induces those natural algal blooms, those beneficial algal blooms, to make them happen year round. And so, so studying the harmful ones was actually very helpful and, 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 and provided the framework by which we could make those beneficial algae grow all the time. Um, just to give you a sense of the ocean, though, uh, in the ocean, there are five times more animals than there are on land. So the ocean is a very rich, productive environment. We don't have the kind of big forests and the big sort of familiar landscapes that we know 
in the ocean, but there is actually a lot of food being produced and a lot of biological activity. Um, the ocean at any one point in time has uh, 50 years worth of all the nitrogen demand, so all the fertilizer demand we have on land, both the natural fertilizer as well as the man-made fertilizer available at any one point in time. So there's lots of nutrients. Um, the ocean has 38,000 plus gigatons of CO2 dissolved in it. In the atmosphere, we only have about 700 gigatons. So it's a very rich environment. It supports a lot of life and a lot of biological activity. So the one, the one way to make it more additive and to make more ocean happen was to bring that deep water that would not have come to the surface onto land, make those blooms happen, take the algae out, sun dry them there in the desert, super cheap again, so that we can bury them. And then the deacidified seawater that can absorb a lot of CO2 goes back to the ocean. But the reason why I'm saying that is, is we wanted to make sure that we are not taking anything away from, from the natural environment. So that's, so the solution is you take the seawater out, you put it into a giant pool, you let these good algae blooms happen. Then you take the algae out, you dry it and you bury it, as you said, putting the oil back in the ground. So 70 million years from now, there will be new oil that you're creating instead of just a layer of toxic plastic that they'll discover. Yeah. Exactly. Years from now. exactly. And exactly so doing, you have deacidified the ocean water. So, because many of the climate solutions that we have, like desal um, shoot, <laughs> desalination for ocean water to, to create drinking water, the results are more toxic. It's salt and it's other chemical at higher concentrations that damage the ecosystem. That's the big problem with desalination, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. And that's why it only can represent, even in places like California or Morocco or Spain or any of uh, the Mediterranean, it can only represent a small portion of the drinking water solution for any country, unfortunately, which is a great shame for now, until we discover, like you said, something massive that might change that in the next 50 years. Uh, but you're doing this and the result is actually better and it's making the ecosystem better and then the ocean can do its job more effectively. So that's brilliant, obviously. Incredible. I would have never, ever thought of that. Uh, but I saw two images and this is something that I'm interested in. So I saw the giant swimming pool, for lack of a better term, but next to the ocean, as, as you can see in the photograph on your website. But then I also saw an image of an ocean with a bunch of green shimmering algae in it. Now, is that just an example of the naturally occurring phenomenon or is that something that you're also contributing to? No, it's a, that is a natural occurring phenomenon. So I don't want to reduce any of that. So again, it's important we take that deep water that wouldn't have made it to the surface that couldn't reach the surface where that bloom would happen. You're absolutely right that those natural blooms, they actually move an enormous amount of carbon. So 20% of all the uh, carbon that is fixed by the ocean, that is actually absorbed by the ocean, goes through the biological process in the ocean. It's just that thin little sort of coastal uh, sort of bloom 
Um, there are some that are in the open ocean as well. But the fact is, is it, that, that coastal environment and those upwelling areas are very productive. And so what we wanted to do was to sort of be as productive as that. In terms of carbon buried, we are, with our ponds, 30 times more productive than a unit of area of forest, of sort of normal forest. Now, love forests. Yeah, and I'm, I, I, I plant a lot of trees, and I really, really, uh, my, my, maybe my German background um, uh, makes me particularly fond of trees. But the fact is, uh, in terms of the carbon sequestered, uh, we believe we can make a more secure burial in the sense that we're not worried about the forest burning down. Um, but also the per unit area, we're just much more efficient. So yes, there's a lot of desert, but I, 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 I'm not crazy enough to want to cover the whole desert with ponds. Um, and, so, and so it just had to be efficient enough to actually be able to make a big impact. And so, so the efficiency of the ponds relative to other biological systems was important to us as well. That makes perfect sense. You mentioned, obviously, that these naturally occurring phenomena happen only a couple weeks or 10 days. Is there any way to encourage it to happen in the ocean itself in the wintertime, or is that a pipe dream? No, uh, the, 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 the question is very well phrased. So there are um, actually artificial upwelling proposals, There are uh, which are pipes that take that deep water and through a clapper valve, bring it to the surface as you have the normal surge and tidal surge of the ocean. So there are proposals where people are looking at ways of enhancing natural biological growth. For example, um, the, the, there are ocean fertilization experiments where people supplement iron to areas that are low in iron. Um, it's a very active research area. The challenge is it's very difficult to then budget for how that additional biological activity actually removed carbon or fed fish or did other beneficial things. So yes, a lot of very well-intentioned projects have tried to in, in, in create it's a, a different kind of nature-based solution which in uses what the ocean does and tries to amplify that um, they haven't necessarily been that successful because at the end of the day a lot of those algae those new algae that then were grown as a result of that kind of uh, enhanced upwelling um, got eaten and remineralized and they turned back into co2 so the point is, is the, the actual accounting for that is very difficult. And also, um, and we've learned this sort of very late, but a lot of these projects are in the open ocean, certified by outside bodies, done by investigators that people don't know, and they sound a little bit spooky. And they're sort of, you know, benefiting companies in developed countries that are that can afford or or nations that can afford that kind of research 
And so a lot of the local people that are bound, you know, on, that are near these areas are very skeptical. Um, and one, of adva one advantage that we have is that we work in countries, in jurisdictions. We work in politically stable countries that have, you know, their environmental impact assessments. You have to uh, create local jobs. It's a the that we pay taxes it's something that the local communities can benefit from and can participate in and it turns out that that is a really important part uh not from an esg kind of uh certification point of view but from a local engagement and local support again connections um because it is the local uh solutions often working in those environments where the people who've lived in that desert for many generations know exactly how to handle certain situations uh sandstorms um other other challenges power outages um and so so we found that actually working within the jurisdictions of countries we've worked in south africa in oman and now in morocco we want to go to places like Chile, Mexico, uh, Australia, Namibia. Um, there are parts of uh, the Arabian Sea, um, parts of the Gulf, parts of the Red Sea, lots of parts of the Mediterranean. So there are many places we can do this. And, and having that local buy-in is really important. The other thing that makes us sort of more confident maybe is because we know exactly what happens to our water. We can measure and demonstrate what happened to our water when we discharge it back to the ocean. So no interpretation there. It's measured, it's recorded. Um, but we also have the biomass. We actually have, we can have a Ross Palmer, uh, you know, off, you know, beat the often path <laughs> landfill and you can send gold standard or Vera or whatever too. A landfill then, is very appropriate for this show. <laughs> I'm going to have one thing named after me in this life. I hope it's a landfill. <laughs> very symbolic. <laughs> the point is, it's where garbage can... goes to rot. <laughs> well, no, it's where you store the carbon. Where you... No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I love but the idea. The I'd idea. happily do it. Uh, get the idea. The point is, is you can have you know you actually own the biomass, right? So it's yeah. it's a different proposal. Yeah. Well, and one of your farms, if I'm not mistaken, uh, sequesters the equivalent of eight thousand cars per year, and obviously you can do this all over the world. So it's a very very exciting solution, and like you mentioned, you can sustainably power it with energy that's off grid, renewable energy. Uh, how cool is this? It's it's a phenomenal so, concept. So what we look, we're still a young company. We're still a sure. startup, um, and we have now built the largest algal raceway, that giant pond, that giant pool. It looks spectacular. Um, and we are in the process of building a commercial demonstrator site that does all of this in a scale demonstration, so that it's really persuasive. It'll produce thousands of tons of carbon to CO2 to sequester. Um, that 8,000 uh, cars example is the first commercial module. That's 1,000 hectares. 
but we already have uh, 6,100 hectares of land in Morocco, another sort of uh, large amount in Oman. Um, we've identified half a million square kilometers of really ideal land all over the world. So that's where the uh, sugarcane crop size comes in. Um, what we want to do as a company is this sort of turn this into a recipe that we can give to people to show them how to do it and and make it accessible in places like Chile, Namibia, uh, Peru, um, you know, the Sea of Cortez, Baja California, those kinds of places. The reason why I say that is to have that impact, there's a lot more than 8,000 cars. We got to build a lot of these farms. Mm -hmm. And yes, we'll do our bit to build those farms. But the, the real trick now, sort of our near-term future, is to scale everything to, you know, a really substantive scale. The good news is, um, in our experience, the bigger we get, the more stable the algal growth gets. So that kind of helps. Um, and the other good news is, is we found some really, really supportive, uh, sort of very receptive funders. Uh, both here in the UK, Innovate UK is a state agency that has given us grant money when it really mattered, as well as in the private sector and in the in the uh, in the venture capital community. So we're I've, I feel well supported, and I'm actually quite optimistic that we will get there in a in a in that we will make a meaningful contribution and really sensible time frame put it that way so by in 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 uh, by the end of next year i want to be fully building a 30 hectare demonstrator site but two years later we want to be fully doing that commercial site and from there on it's just a cookie cutter but we take that model and repeat it over and over again well that's just fabulous. And obviously, I'm not the only one who thinks so. You've received tens of millions in funding, big partners so far. Very promising stuff. Uh, I'm going to close that chapter as unbelievably interesting as it is in the interest of time because I want to get to one quick point before we forget, and that is that you have written a book that is very appropriate to the concepts that we discuss on this show and also to your general philosophy, of which I'm a, a big fan and that book is called Light to Life in Some Areas, or How Light Makes yeah, Life? In, 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 the, in the U.S., it's called How, uh, How Light Makes Life. And, uh, and it's a book about photosynthesis, and it's not a book for scientists. Um, in, over the years, I've run into lots and lots of different ideas, how all of us, each one of us, in even in the middle of a city, I live in an area of London where there hasn't been a tree in 2000 years um, <laughs> can actually make a difference. And, um, and, and where each one of us can either behave differently or, or plant more things. And since I like planting things, it sort of was all about photosynthesis. But when you tell the story of photosynthesis, there's one big misconception which is that biological life responds to external uh, sort of signals and that sort of physics drives the system and geology makes the resources and biology kind of adapts. It's sort of the receiving end of the, of the forces in nature. The way I see photosynthesis is we've got that sunlight 
it has started four and a half billion years ago, right at the get-go, when the planet was this toxic, brown, acidic, anoxic marble. And it certainly was a very hostile environment. And in that hostile environment, these little biological organisms started growing. And the first thing they did is they cleared out the oceans. They made, they changed the oceans to the degree where all that acid uh, sort of literally started precipitating out and the, uh, all that iron started raining out and they changed the geology and the chemistry of the ocean. Then they changed the atmosphere. Um, when these algae grow and sort of settle out, they get so heavy that they crack the continents and the continental plates and are a factor in the kind of tectonics that move Earth, the Earth crust around. And so the way I saw it is, is there's one consistent force that driven by that sunlight has continued to grow from the very beginning. There was very little life in the beginning in these little niches in these tiny, tiny little sort of mud domes. And, and, and that life has just increased and increased and increased. Every so often there were some setbacks, some ice ages. Um, but the fact is when it comes to clearing out an entire atmosphere of toxic stuff and changing the world, biology has done it over and over and over again. And so it's a growth story. And the reason why I thought that was very cool when we all feel like we're running out of resources, actually nature has made more resources available than in any previous epoch or era. And as nature grows, it creates more living spaces. So it's actually, our planet is from, an, from a biological productivity point of view, it's actually growing. So that was cool. But the other Very. part that I really enjoyed about writing that book was that the people who figured all of this out <laughs> were definitely the often path beaters. They were uh, everything from mystics, priests, doctors, showmen, um, entertainers uh, that were trying to figure out how all this stuff kind of works. And, and they did this through very difficult times. Uh, the Spanish Inquisition chasing them, um, the French Revolution, uh, periods of starvation. And, and yet, they sort of found a way to stay in a sense positive in those times. And so what I also wanted to show was that, you know, things are difficult, but we can help ourselves. And, and people have done so. People are pretty ingenious actually, and they come up with pretty awesome solutions. And there's 8 billion of us. And if 8 billion of us kind of try to do our little bit, we can actually get a really long way. And so I, I, part of it was also sort of trying to create a little bit of a message of hope that we can do something about this and that we don't have to be, you know, there's so much negative news and can be very shrill, but that not everything has to be that shrill negative news. So that was the other reason to write the book. <laughs> Let's get a clap for that one. <laughs> Love that. And I need a copy of that book in my life. I'm going to purchase this immediately. Will you hold it up for the people who are watching? This is the non-US version. I know you've got one right there. There we go. Yes. Brilliant stuff. Light to life. How light makes life. 
fabulous concept, fabulous ideas. We talked before we began filming exactly the kind of ideas that I also celebrate and believe. So what a whirlwind this has been. What a fabulous conversation this has been. I can't thank you enough for sharing your story and your time. I support all of it. And obviously, I'm not the only one. It's a very interesting solution that I hope to see go much further in the next five to 10 years. And it sure looks like you're on a path where that's going to happen. And then some extremely exciting, Raphael. So again, just thank you from the bottom of my heart for for being here and for letting me get some insight into how you think. I'm definitely, definitely going to follow up uh, because I, uh, how do I, I, I think this is a great format. I think an uh, absolutely spectacular idea because um, human capital is just invaluable. So I think you're you're onto something. Well, it sh- I sure feel like it when I get to talk to people like you, that's for sure. <laughs> Certainly makes my morning at 8 a.m. a little bit more pleasant than it otherwise would have been. And like you said, the news can be quite shrill indeed and quite negative. And I get so much hope from hearing that you have done this and that that we can give permission to other people to do the same. And seeing the look on your face right now, for those who are just listening, the, the look of happiness and satisfaction and lightness that you're working on something that matters, it's palpable. You can feel that. And that is not something that you feel when you talk to the average cubicle dweller <laughs> working in middle man. And you, you get a different sense of the energy there. And that is that is for me what it's all about. So I, I could talk to you for hours and hours. I could sing your praises for, for hours. But again, I'm just super thrilled to have you on here. I do want to leave the last word just as you were able to open this episode. You can close it out. So any action, anything you want people to do, you're going to wrap this up. What do you want people to know? So when you read the book very quickly, there are examples where some very humble people who really don't have much in life, who happen to like to drink beer, uh, for example, just fill that beer can with dirt, put a sunflower seed in, and then grow sunflowers and roast sunflower seeds. It doesn't take money. You can do a lot. Every fruit has seed in it. Um, Avocados. I've got lots of avocado trees. Um, you can do all kinds of things with just a little bit of ingenuity. Internet is fantastic for finding recipes of how to grow things. And you can do a lot, but it's also healthy. It makes you engage. It's nice to watch a plant grow simply because it's slow and it grows and it does it on its own and it has this whole program of developing. And so it's just fascinating to do something that is in a different pace than normal life. So it's good for for lots of reasons. So thank you for this show. Thank you, Ross, for doing this. And it's much appreciated. I really enjoyed this too. And good luck out there. Thank you, and same to you, although I don't think you need it anymore. I think you'll be just (laughs) fine. Um, With that, the official podcast is over. 